0: Hello and welcome to Be a B2B Leader. I'm your host Felician and today my guest is Dave Polos, the president of Cronite Partners and a marketing executive that creates and executes strategies for diverse companies across nearly all industries. Many entrepreneurs want to into, break into a new market segment, but they often learn as they go and they make a lot of mistakes. So in this episode, Dave will tell us what they should focus on to be successful in this journey. So let's get started. Hi, Dave. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So let's dive straight into the topic. Please tell me, what should every B2B leader know if they want to break into a new market segment?
1: Well, we have to define what it means to buy market segment too. Are we talking vertical industry or are we talking about uh, a different geographic market or are we talking about a different user segment? different audience? How do, how do you want to define it? Let's define it with a new industry. New industry. Alright, so you're a software provider that's basically been making software for um, the media industry, say, and now you yep. want to expand that into, say, private businesses to use for their video production or whatever. Alright, yep. that's a different Sounds vertical perfect. sector, similar usage. Um, and and very few changes are gonna to need to be made to accommodate that market. Where the changes are gonna to need to be made is in what benefits are highlighted, the approach you use to that market, what the pain points are in that market that are different. I'm a big advocate of doing customer insight research to determine the customer's pain points. You can't know the customer well enough. There's no way you can ever get enough good information on your customers, your buyers. And there are several ways to gain more, and that's the one I happen to favor most because it's the most honest. If you're doing survey work and, and you're just asking yes-no questions or the occasional open-ended, you're really not going to get the deep insights that you need to collect enough data accurately enough to make good marketing decisions. And the more you base all your decisions on data from the customer and sometimes from the prospect and non-customer, the sharper your messaging is going to be, the more attuned it's going to be to the target market, the more aligned it's going to be with their problems, and the better it's going to be. It's better it's going to work for them. They're going to align with your message. It's going to resonate and they're going to take the action that you want them to take, which is to buy. So realistically, the more you know about the customer, the better your marketing is going to be if that path has been established. Now, if you're breaking into a new market, I'm going to assume that if that decision was made, someone somewhere along the line, did some homework and determined that, A, there was a need amongst your new market and that there was sufficient size amongst the members of that new market to make it worth doing. Because those are the two things that where people often run into trouble. Uh, I was always surprised when someone says, well, I'm just going to go try and market to X. And I said, well, how many of those actually are there? And they give me a very tiny number. And I said, and how many of those are you actually going to sell to? And then they give me a fraction of that number. And then and how many of them are going to buy and then bring it back or, or are going to discontinue. And then they give me another number. So now you're down to a very tiny fraction of what was probably looked like a normal sized effort mm-hmm. at the beginning, but it's too small by the time you whittle it down to really make it worth attacking for the cost. It's going to cost you to break in because of all the so noise.
0: How do you learn how big is the market actually? So should you go to sales
1: navigator or LinkedIn and just look at those companies? There are lots and lots of tech tools out there that will allow you to decide the size of a market. Um, One of the quickest ways I've determined is through uh, publications and trade organizations. Their job is to know how big that market is because they serve those people as their members or as their readers. So if you can get a list of subscribers to the number one publication or number two blog or number three website through some tech means, you can look those things up as well. You've got a pretty good read on it fairly quickly. If I know that I want to talk to people in the New York area, and I want to know how many that really is, I've got 16 sources that'll tell me, most of which will differ slightly. Mm -hmm. But if I really want to know who the readers are, if I'm selling a book or a publication, my best bet is just to pick up the New York Times reader list and use that. It's viable. It's pre-prepared. You know they've done their homework and it delivers, so there's no reason not to be able to use it for outreach it also gives you a very good idea of people who like to read because it is a publication you have to go within the the niche and and the the direction and the driver that feeds that audience so if you if you try going against that if you're trying to sell videos and you were to pick up the new york times list you're not going to have much luck because those people are readers not video viewers they don't consume your product that way and that's one of the big things you have to look at when breaking into a new market how are your new customers going to consume your product and how does it differ from the ones that exist now? Those are two big awesome. factors. When you conduct that research,
0: are there some questions that you should ask people, like something specific, or should you always
1: come up with new questions based on the research? Customer research is, is, is an art form as much as it is a science, but you have to structure your questions in a way that will elicit a response that you can base a decision on. Asking uh, Just casually chatting with customers is not going to get you what you want. And a lot of people approach their research that way. They say, well, I stood in the trade show booth for you know 35 hours last month and talked to a lot of customers and here's what they had to say. Okay, you had 35 conversations maybe, or 40 conversations, none of which was structured, none of which was written down, none of which was recorded so you can go back and reference it, and none of it was set up in a way that the questions were similar in each one so that you can compare A to B. There are very specific ways you should ask questions. Uh, Generally in research with anything and especially in customer research, you never wanna ask a yes, no question because it cuts the conversation off right there. You have your answer, yes, now let's go on. Okay, that whole subject is now off the table unless you come back to it, which is very inefficient. So you wanna ask open-ended questions in a way that allows the customer to elaborate on not only their their physical actions and their their mental um, framework at the time, but on their emotions, because emotions are what sell things. Everybody has, every purchase that's ever made is an emotional decision. It's not an intellectual one. The intellectual part comes in afterwards as a justification for the emotional trigger that you've triggered through your marketing. It's a beautiful thing if you can drive that emotional reaction on a consistent basis over and over again, because that's what actually sales is.
0: Yeah. I think that many business owners would argue with the, with you on this, that sales are based on an emo- emotional level, but that's the truth. Like when you read all the research, it always shows up that, yeah, people first focus on emotions and then later they justify it.
1: And that's, that's how it works. That's how human beings are wired. We see something, we want something. Now, why do I justify purchasing that? Well, the money may not all be mine. In the case of B2B, you've got eight, at least, decision makers involved in making that purchase. Each one of them has has a a different motivator intellectually. The CFO's got to look out for the budget. Uh, The marketing guy may want some cool new toy. Uh, The operations people want to make sure that it's rock solid. The compliance people want to make sure that it's, it's legal. So they've all got different drivers in their rationalization. But the motivation has got to be, oh, that's cool. We got to have that. It's an emotional precedent that's set up and rationalized in different ways, depending on who the source is.
0: Yeah. So how do you learn what people care about when you break into a new segment that you don't
1: know yet? One of the things you want to look at is if you have several test customers, typically when you've decided to break into a new market, you've got four or five customers in that sector already. You've sold them. They came in by accident. It's, it's what in big pharma we call an off-label use. The, the stuff was not intended for them, but it actually served a need they have that was probably a little different than the one that was intended in your original design. And they've decided, well, you know, that works as this as well. I've got water pitchers upstairs and we don't use them to put water in. We use them to put all kinds of things in. But the designer of that water pitcher never dreamed it was going to do anything but put water in there. So I'm a new market for that. This is the same way. If your software is designed for, say, financial advisors, And suddenly accountants pick it up and say, oh, that's a neat feature. I like that. I could use that in my practice. Okay. The accountant's pain points are going to be different than the financial advisor's pain points, but they're using the same software probably in different ways or different parts of it dominate their usage. So regardless of of the fact that they're buyers, they probably had to justify it to five or six different people, but the emotion that they looked at it and said, wow, that was cool. That can help me. That's all they needed to do. And the rest is all noise to make sure that somebody doesn't yell at them for spending the money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the case with uh, yeah business in
0: general, that if we can build relationships with people and we can better understand them, then we'll just do better work as marketers, as yeah entrepreneurs and
1: salespeople, basically. But trust is incredible. It all- it's, that's the bedrock of all of this is, is trust. when you're working in a company, especially in the marketing department, because we're seen as the 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 pencils and crayons people, the image people, we're always having fun, photo shoots and podcasts and videos and all that stuff. It's fun compared to sitting there in an operations desk or or behind a customer service desk or uh, playing with spreadsheets all day. We're having fun, but we're also spending a majority of the outgoing spend in order to get more customers in the door because that's the function of business is to serve customers and to make a profit. So we're seen by the rank and file as having fun. We're seen by the accountants as the big black sinkhole for budget. And we're seen by the CEO as a necessary evil in many cases, which means we've got to justify all of our actions four or five different ways to three or four different people. That's a very tough job. But without us, everybody else withers on the vine because there are no new customers, there's no new revenue, there's no ongoing revenue streams. Mm. Without that prop up, without that prompt, without that awareness, that need to have that product, You can create the most dynamite product in the world and nobody will ever know it's there and they'll never buy it. So we all depend on each other, but we spend an awful lot of time justifying what is really an emotional decision. We're just making the thing look cool and that requires some fun, but we have to give people the tools on the other end to be able to justify it intellectually in order for them to make the buy. If a marketer wants to help his CEO break
0: into a new segment. And their campaigns aren't working. Like they are failing over and over again just because they didn't have enough insights. Like how can they explain that to the CEO that yeah, they need more budget, but more that will be focused on customer research instead of campaigns?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, if if you have your campaign set up properly, you'll know why they're failing. Being able to justify why they're failing is half the battle, but... If you're looking at those failures and it's something that you can point to directly that says, I need to know more about X, now it's not just a broad scale we need to know. It's a broad scale is I need to know this. And that very specific point says, okay, I'll give you a limited budget to go find out that and to adjust your efforts accordingly based on the answers you Mm -hmm. get. The more specific specificity you can work into uh, your proposal for the CEO the more likely it is to be approved because it has a capsule. It's it's contained that way. The mm-hmm. spend is, is limited. There's a certain amount you can go up to and then you're done. Um, and they feel much more comfortable in that basis. And the more you talk to them about this stuff, the more you communicate your needs and desires and, and what's going on and, and the efforts you're making, the more comfortable they will feel because they understand things better. They feel in control. They feel informed. So the best thing you can do if you're going to say, look, we need to be selling to X. You better know an awful lot about X. There's better be an awful lot of them, and there's got to be enough of them by the time you whittle it down to your sales using your real numbers. Now, if your close rate is is 20 or 30%, you're going to have to have four times the number of market recipients before you're even in the ballpark. So that's that changes the numbers dynamically if your close rates are low. Now, that would be something to investigate all on its own, and that's probably another episode. But... Regardless, if if your close rate is low and you know it, you have to use that number to calculate your market viability size. The minimum number you're going to need is probably 16 times the number of your close rate. So by the time you whittle it down to buyers and non-buyers.
0: And do you think it's possible to expand with a very limited budget just because someone
1: wants to go into that space? You can. You have to choose your tactics carefully. Um, Probably the least expensive tactic but the longest lasting and the most accurate for the budget is PR. You want to make best friends with every reporter in that sector. You want to make sure everybody's got plenty of pre-samples to try. You want to make sure people are seen sampling it. You want to make sure there's plenty of video and audio recordings of people's reactions when they try your product or or work your software or show the outcomes of somebody doing that and show the improvement they make in articles and, and other things that are paid for by someone else that show value. Paid ads go so far, but again, nobody reads them, but boy, they'll read an article that mentions such and such bought this and, and they got X outcome. That has much, much more power in a market where your brand is not well known, but that you have some leakage. You've sold a few. You can pull customers to get testimonials, the ones that did buy. Why did you buy this? Did you like it? What happened with it? What was the result of your of your purchase? Can we record that and use that as a testimonial to show others that there's value for people like you? People identify with people like themselves. So as soon as you get a few that are recognizable and maybe they have uh, the publication or or the blog, do an interview with them or the podcast, do an interview Mm -hmm. with one of your customers. Now they're highlighting not only what that person does. So now you're aligning it with all the target audience that does the same thing they do. Once you have that, now you have recognition because this person is now a media celebrity. They're on TV, they're 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 yeah. accessible. I can read them, I can talk to them. So you've, you've got that alignment and that resonance um, in two different ways. And three, they know you're not compensated for this. You didn't buy that testimonial. They actually bought your product and used it. It's honest, it's credible. That has a huge value in breaking into a new market because if people actually think that it's real and that's legitimate, and that it's something that they can actually count on that person's assessment to be accurate and not hyped up, you're going to go much, much farther in that new market on a very limited budget. PR doesn't cost much. It just takes time.
0: But do you think that PR is as effective today as it was, let's say, 10
1: years ago? That's a very good question. Um, In my experience, there are far more outlets now than there used to be. Used to be PR was was you you got a couple of industry magazines. You may have had a blog or a podcast somewhere in there that was a, a supreme leader. Mm-hmm. Now you throw in Instagram and TikTok and all these other platforms that people can be on. Uh, PR's value has diluted slightly. And the reason is there are no recognized leaders. Even being an influencer doesn't mean you're a leader because there's nobody vetting your material. There's no overarching Editor. There's no editor in chief or publisher that's looking at that and going, ah, that's garbage. Or gee, this is terrific. And and sort of meeting out the accuracy that you need to make good decisions. So yeah, PR probably has less value in the aggregate than it used to. However, because things are so fragmented, you can really pick your superstars with the highest following counts. You can pick the guys with the highest credibility. You can pick the guys with the highest recognition amongst your target. And really work those very hard, and pretty much get what you need out of that channel as well.
0: Yeah, because that's the thing that I've seen with PR that, yeah, many companies try to leverage it, but it doesn't work out for them because they go at yeah go after the wrong reporters. They don't follow the right media, and sometimes I think that it would be yeah they would be better off if their CEO would just start posting content that's actually valuable for their audience. And yeah, it doesn't take as much work and they have that knowledge in-house, but people are afraid to share their
1: know-how because they are giving away their secret sauce. And Well, the trick is to make was... it look like the sauce is on there, but it's not because <laughs> you put seven or eight pieces of the puzzle out there publicly, but the two that are missing are really important and they've got to come to you for them. That's the bait. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's yeah. how you have to do it. Everybody's got a little knowledge. And if you share a little bit of knowledge, it's not going to be the end of the world. It's not a zero sum game. Just because you know it doesn't mean you can do what I did with it. So that's the yeah. difference, is that people think this is a currency. And it's not. It's an it's an aggregator. It's a draw. It pulls people like, together. When you all know the same things, now you can have a conversation because you all have yeah. the same base of knowledge. Like that's the f- reason why people hire consultants.
0: Like you don't hire a consultant because he knows yeah, the stuff that you do, but he has the experience that yeah. Is that really, really that secret sauce that will make you succeed?
1: Sure. If you hire a consultant and they do something in half an hour, you're going to be really disappointed because, oh, yeah. geez, I paid for a month and this guy did it in half an hour. Well, what you paid for was the expertise he learned over 20 years to be able to do it in half an hour. That's what you paid for. <laughs> it's, yeah. not, it's not the time. It's the yeah. investment in, in his knowledge to get there that you paid for. So it may be disappointing, but you got where you were going and you paid a correct price for it. That's one of the, the yeah. best parts about hiring a consultant is when you come in, you don't have to invest those 12,000 hours in learning how to do that. He's already done that. So you're paying for his yeah. time prior to his engagement to be able to do yours effectively, efficiently, and cost efficiently. That's what you're paying for. And if, it's not like putting up your hand and asking for help is a weakness. Because you can't know everything. Things are way too fragmented and moving way too fast, especially in marketing, for people to to be able to know everything. A good generalist is probably a year behind. A bad generalist is probably five years behind. A very tightly specified, say one like Andre Zinkovich, that guy has really got ABM nailed down to a science. But if you ask him about PR, he's going to go, maybe. If you ask him about you know, broad scale broadcast advertising. He's not going to be a director for TV commercials. So he has a very specific expertise and most have a very specific tactical expertise. Those are the guys you bring when you know what the problem is. It's tightly defined and you know that it needs to be solved to fix other problems. That's why you hire guys like that and they're brilliant at it. They're just wonderful. You bring them in and go, oh, I need this done, this done, and this done. Come back two days later, oh, we took care of this, this, and this. And while we were in there, we also fixed X great, terrific, here's your money. Um, that doesn't happen with long-term generalists. What long-term generalists do, um, like I'm a fractional CMO, so I'll come in at the head mm-hmm. of the table and get all the, the cats moving in the same direction and making sure everything is is smooth and integrated and talks to each other and then report those facts to the CEO in a way that he can understand. That role, not only of organizing and coordinating, but shuttling and communicating, is key to making things run smoothly over time. That's a long term assignment. It's it's not something you can come in and do in two weeks. It's something you have to come in and do over two years. So our, my engagements tend to be fairly long, um, but mm-hmm. most of the tactical guys can come in and do it in a couple of months and get what they need.
0: Yeah. So I would like to connect those two topics
1: of yeah, working with subject
0: matter experts and expanding to a new market segment. Do you think that, yeah, companies should hire subject matter experts from the industry that they want to expand to just to increase their chances of success.
1: That's a very good question. I think most companies are expert at their own products, they're not expert at all of their customers. And the more you, we talk again about how much you know about those customers and how they use things and how they buy things and what their pain points are. The better expertise you know about that, then you can come in and say, I need a guy that speaks this language, that understands these problems, and we can show him how our products fix those problems, and he can speak for us in in an authoritative way. So in that regard, yes, bring in someone from the outside, if not to be the face on the page, but to educate the people who are. So it, it may not be a case of sit down and write me 10 articles about this. It may be, I've written 10 articles, please review these and adjust them for, for the people that are just like you.
0: Yeah. Because this people, yeah, this person knows what others care about. Like, sure. Because he's one of I them. I think like, yeah, exactly. Like, I think that's kind of like a cheat code. Like when you really want to expand into a specific niche, because you get in someone who understands everything. They can save you from mistakes. They know what other vendors yeah do wrong. And yeah, because yeah, just help you, basically. Not that's making mistakes is f- about
1: half the battle. So I think that's a yeah. very good analogy. <laughs> For every mistake you don't make means that's that much more to spend on something you do know about. So sure, that's a big goal is to to cut down on errors and, and going down wrong paths because you need to test or you need to, to, to figure something out. The more someone else that's already figured it out can inform you, the less all that's going to cost and the faster you can go to market with it.
0: Yeah, but I think the tricky part in this would be actually identifying those subject matter experts. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, sometimes people can tell you beautiful words and beautiful sentences, but when it comes to execution, they know nothing.
1: No question about it. Uh, I, in fact, I wrote a blog post about that a couple of weeks ago, uh, or maybe less, that, that talks about uh, and experts aren't always experts. And, and they may say they are, but... It, you really have to, to take everything with sort of a grain of salt. You have to be a little judicious in all this. You have to understand a little bit about how promotion is done and why people do the things they do, especially when you're using social media as the basis of your opinion, which is another one of those functions that industry publications used to take care of for you because they had a whole stable of industry experts and writers as, as freelance writers and contributing columnists. You knew those guys knew what they were talking about because every other month they would come out with a column that really told the story well from their own standpoint. And they always listed in their biography, such and such was the president of X before he wrote this article. Mm -hmm. And it's the leading company in that industry. So you know you can count on what that guy's saying, he's been there, it's clear he's been there. Um, But we don't have that anymore. Anyone can call themselves an expert and it's up to you to figure it out. So. How would you figure it
0: out? Because when you go to LinkedIn, anyone can add anything to their LinkedIn profiles, basically. Like, it's not that hard.
1: <laughs> you can. Uh, what you'll find, though, is the guys that are faking it um, will not have very many contacts, will not have very many people recommending them, will not have very many people speaking highly of of their, their engagements with them. Um, when you're going to talk to somebody seriously, one of the first things I ask for is, can I talk to a couple of, of your your smallest customers, your newest customers? Because mm-hmm. the, the old guys, he probably conned into it when he was first starting, and, and they're perfectly happy because he didn't charge them half of what he's charging now. Yeah. Uh, but if you get one of the brand new ones that just made the decision, not only is the decision still fresh in their mind so you can figure out how they made that decision, what of his materials triggered that buy, what sucked them in, but also you can say, well, how was your onboarding? How how did that startup go? Was it smooth? Was it coordinated? Did things happen correctly and quickly? Um, Did you get what you needed early going or did it take forever and try your patience? Um, Those kinds of things often indicate how high a level of professional you've really hired because they understand that customers don't have a lot of time for futzing around. They need to get in there and get work done and you need to hit the ground running. If you don't do that, that means they're still figuring out what their offer is. And if that's the case, they're probably, they may be a good subject matter expert, but they're not going to be good to work with. They're going to be hard to work with because they're still, they're still selling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, they're not doing that's yet. Some... They're still selling. So that's yeah. hard. Um, always get recommendations from people that you know, whether it's third hand, third hand is fine. Actually, if, if it's a recommendation, if I wanted to go talk to, um, what's his name? Nemanchek there. He and I have had conversations online. Mm -hmm. Um, We haven't had conversations over the phone, but just from what he's posted and what he's put up and how he responds to people, it's very, very clear. He knows what he's talking about, about that particular subject. If I needed that particular subject, I would definitely make sure that I talked to two or three people that have interacted with him. And I would see if I could find somebody in my network that has either worked with him or knows somebody who has. So that's three away. But that's still enough to verify that the outcome was good, that the result was positive, and that they got what they paid for. That's enough.: so, Yeah. So we
0: just have to focus on people and basically talk with people, ask them about their opinions, and
1: Opinions yeah. still like, matter. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. despite all the rest <laughs> of this, opinions still matter. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it's a feeling. Again, we're back to this is an emotional buy. Work is an emotional yeah. thing, too. If you're struggling to interact with somebody, if you're constantly working to get a straight answer out of somebody, if you're emotionally distant from the people you're working with, they're not going to enjoy the experience and they're not going to work as hard as they could and their productivity is going to be down and their engagement level is going to be down and you're really not going to get the results that the effort should lead to because nobody's pushing it hard enough. The, the thing about marketing internally is you need an evangelist. You need someone to go out there and explain what it is you're doing and why it's important and to whom it matters and why. If you don't have those things constantly being trumpeted at meetings and and in in blogs and newsletters and emails and everything else internally, this is your own company. You're trying to get on board with all this. All You need a champion internally from all the different departments. Somebody's got to say, oh, that's cool. I love when they do that. Because that spreads the positivity around throughout the entire company after a while. And then it starts to get everybody rowing in the same direction. And then things start to work. Because no matter what interaction outsiders have with that company, they're all saying the same thing. They're all say, reading from the same page. That gives credibility. And that makes a buy. Like I think that the topic of yeah
0: building a company culture could be a whole episode or Absolutely. even a series. Or more. because Yeah. <laughs> Because I love this topic and really I'm experiencing it right now, how our company culture is growing and how we are developing. Mm-hmm. And really just seeing that all parents are on board. It's, yeah, is a marketer's dream come true, basically. That's great. So, yeah. so Dave, one last question for today.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What would you say, what's the biggest
1: takeaway from this conversation? I would say you cannot know your customer well enough And you have to understand what motivates that customer emotionally. You don't necessarily need to know what his favorite benefit is of your product. You don't need to know um, know, what kind of car he drives, unless it's something very specific and you're selling auto parts. Uh, You need to know what that customer's view of you is and how you make them feel. If you know that and you know the pain points they're facing and you're the one solving those pain points, you will get sales. You will get revenue. If you know those things and leverage those into your marketing, you will get sales. Perfect. And who should I interview next? So who's the B2B leader? Uh, well, I mentioned a couple. Um, uh, Andre Zinkovic certainly is is a leader. And I think you've already spoken to his partner, yeah. which was the next yeah, guy. Yeah. I, was going I to had Andre too yes well they, yeah. they both know what they're doing i'm very impressed with those guys yeah. to be honest uh, they came sort of out and of they nowhere are awesome. and they are very good at what they do they've got this figured out and they're not afraid to, to talk about it they're they're very good at explaining what it is they do and that's how critical that is how believable that is when they really know a subject it just rings right through everything they say graham robertson in the uk if you're talking about brand you might talk to him if you're talking about events there's a uh, uh, event marketing is, is a near and dear to my heart because it's so effective and it's so good way to uh, really connect with customers. As uh, a gal named Michelle McNabb, you might want to get a hold of. She's very, very keen on, on building events that are, are far more yeah. than just, you know, dinners and, and that sort of thing. Um, she understands. I would that have to invite her. Yeah, I would. Yeah. Uh, she's, she understands that this, it's a, a, a business function, not just a party. <laughs> it's a very yeah. big difference. <laughs> Um, there are lots of <laughs> like trade many show Many people approach it like a party. Too. They do, and it's fine. The party part yeah. is great, but it has to have a reason, yeah. and it has to have a way to engage yeah. with those customers offline after the party is over to take advantage of all the good feelings that the party brought to the table. Again, we're back to the emotional yeah. component. If you had a, a, yeah. a great conversation with somebody and and shared a drink and a meal with them, how do you go back and reconnect those people later to actually activate business? and this person understands that. So there's, there's a thought for you as well.
0: Yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. Like you can create experiences and this way build relationships.
1: Like it's that easy. Well, think about every conference you ever went to. If if you go to conferences and you sit through those lectures and you go to those dinners and you talk to people and, or go to a trade show and you, you know, you've given out 3000 business cards and the trade show exhibitors all go back and dump the cards on a table and, You go back to your office and you take all the literature you've collected and all the stuff in your goodie bag and you toss it in the corner and you go back to work. 99% of all that effort just went out the window because you never really reconnected with any of those people again because you weren't ready to buy right then and there. So when you are, do you go back to that bag of goodies and go find that guy's business card? (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. Probably not. (laughs) It's up to the (laughs) person. Right. But if you've received nine emails from that person in the last two months, Asking more questions about your business and finding out whether you enjoyed this or that, or did you talk to this and that person while you were there? Just nurturing that relationship along. Yeah. Then when you do need that, not only have you got the guy's contact information, but you can go back and see what they gave you and read his literature on your own. Go back to his website. You're enabled to fulfill the, the, the education mission that he's on. And now yeah. he's your best buddy in that particular space. If you need somebody, he's the go-to. You can guarantee he's at least on the bitter list. So, Because you yeah. know it, he's comfortable. So that's the value in those events is leveraging the afterwards. And a lot of people don't get that. Yeah. 80% of trade show leads are never followed up on at all on an outgoing yeah. basis. Uh, it's a waste. I would even
0: say that's uh, 90 or
1: 99%. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so Dave, where can people find you and how can you help them in business?
1: Oh my goodness, there's a lot of ways. Um, if you go to my website, uh, davidpolis.com and slash blog, there's a way you can download a free white paper uh, that talks about getting inside your customer's head, how to get from I want that to I bought that. Um, it sort of tracks through some of the psychology behind how people buy things, how they shop uh, and how you can find out this information um, on an informal basis and pitch your marketing to align with their emotional needs. It's, a, it's an interesting little 20 page ebook, and it's free and it's, it's a quick read but you'll take away an awful lot of very practical information from it. Um, On that same website is, of course, a much larger book that you're welcome to purchase. Um, It's on Amazon and available through my site and there and other places. Um, It's about 400 pages worth of short little articles that allow you to page through it in say production order. You start off with research and then we go to, there's a chapter on PR, there's a chapter on trade shows, there's a chapter on uh, digital marketing, there's a chapter on on advertising, all that stuff. You sort of get an overview primer. If you're, if you're a young manager that's just walked into a new job, this is one of the coolest ways to get up to speed because it's only going to take you about eight nights to go through it and you're going to take away a huge amount of information. So there's that. And that's all available on the website. If you want To engage me as a consultant to help you work through some of these things, that's certainly a possibility as well. I also operate as a fractional CMO. If you're ready to pull the trigger on a big guy but don't think you can afford it, getting the sort of try-before-you-buy approach may be more comfortable. And uh, the the price is far less. You can buy a fraction of my time for far less than you could pay a full-timer. And my engagements actually last longer than the full-time guy's job tenure in many cases. So that's an easy way to sort of get involved without having to break the bank. Awesome. I will leave, yeah, I will include all
0: the links in the description. And I will also link to your LinkedIn profile. Excellent. This, that's how we connected. So, okay, Dave, thank you very much for today. You shared well, lots for of awesome me. insights. I enjoyed it. And
1: it was a pleasure to have you. I hope everybody got a lot out of it. We'll see. Yeah.